we might have speculated that we could do it. You know, they have plans of doing it. We know they could have done it. But this, this is the moment where it happens. And this is why it's a big deal. The views expressed here do not reflect the views of our respective employers. Hello and welcome to SpexCast, a podcast about the science and technology of space exploration. My name is Phil, and I'll be your host today alongside TJ. Hello. And Ferris. Hey there. <laughs> SpexCast is made for space fans like you. Check out daily space news and mission deep dives on our website, blog.spexcast.com, and join the space discussion on forum.spexcast.com. You can also send us a tweet at SpexCast or send an email to SpexCast at gmail.com. SpaceX and NASA are launching the first American astronauts on American rockets from American soil since 2011. Demo Mission 2, or DM2, represents the culmination of the commercial crew program, which strove to reduce costs and provide the modern capability to deliver astronauts into orbit using, at the time, radical contracting methods. NASA pulled out all the stops for the big event this week. We are recording this episode on May 28th, 2020. And yesterday, NASA and SpaceX attempted to launch the DM-2 mission, which was a Crew Dragon capsule containing two astronauts, Doug Hurley and Bob Benkin, from historic Launch Complex 39A. We watched along until T-15 minutes when the launch was scrubbed due to weather. And as of publication, we hope that DM-2 has launched successfully at the next attempt. So today we're going to talk about what DM-2 is and what it means for the industry. NASA has made a big deal, and SpaceX has too, about all of this. Uh, there's a ton of pomp and circumstance with the astronauts arriving, getting in the vehicle, and the stream had a ton of patriotism and hype. But what for? So DM-2 is a test flight, um, and we haven't had a test flight of a crewed vehicle from the United States since the 1980s with the first flight of the space shuttle. And so it's the excitement of having a payload on the spacecraft that you can know and talk to and identify with, along with the risk of experimental spacecraft. Um, and so DM-2 is the crewed launch of, of Crew Dragon. There was an uncrewed launch uh, last year that successfully launched, docked with the space station and returned. And this is the last certification flight for the commercial crew program. And so if everything goes well and all the data NASA and SpaceX gets back is correct, then NASA will certify SpaceX to send people to the International Space Station, uh, NASA astronauts, Russian cosmonauts, and other international partners uh, as a, a certified service provider. Right. So when the astronauts go up, like this is not technically uh, a mission for the astronauts to do science necessarily. They might bring up cargo and do science along the way when they're at the space station. But the point is to prove that this vehicle is capable and safe enough to carry humans into space, right? I think in general, it's just a big deal to have any spacecraft carry humans to space. DM2 being one at the moment, but I can't even remember when the last time that was the case, actually. You guys know when the last time a new spacecraft took humans to space? Uh, like TJ said, the first time the so the space shuttle was retired in 2011, but yes. that had flown multiple times before. And I think um, well, when was the last 
When was the last time a new spacecraft took humans to space? So there's there's a the Chinese Shenzhou spacecraft, and that's first flew in 1999. First crewed launch was in 2003. Okay, 17 years is the time. It's the last time a new vehicle took humans to space, and it's on SpaceX, no less. Um, so uh, were you guys watching the stream when it happened? Oh yes. I've had this stream playing for the whole day. Yeah, no, the stream was awesome. We had uh, like a Google Meet group chat of a couple of people talking. And, you know, it, the process is really exciting because like when we watch even a Cargo Dragon launch, there's a target launch time. The stream starts up 15 minutes before. They tell you what's inside of it. They count down, they launch. But with crew they have to get fully dressed up in their spacesuits which the spacex suits look amazing then they walk outside and they get into the uh nasa branded tesla model x's and they oh yes say, they say goodbye to their families uh elon musk and jim bridenstine were there to wave them goodbye they drive out to the launch pad and it's like there's all the tracking cameras and like you know it, it's all this anticipation that's building up as they go out, which is really exciting. Yeah, all that anticipation was was really uh, intense for a little bit, especially when they got in the elevator in the launch tower, got out, and the crew there was buckling them into the seats, and you could see them using the touch screens in the interior of the Dragon. And then uh, there was an hour more to wait. <laughs> it was kind of awkward. Well, well for it's worth, ready to go. For it's worth, the stream has, was ongoing even before, you know, the astronauts got suited up and everything. It was it was a long stream, and they really went through. And NASA and SpaceX did really put put in a lot of good effort into pushing this out to the public and documenting it and taking us through the whole journey. It it was pretty awesome. Yeah, uh, for the mission itself, do you think that the streams um, did a good job explaining what the mission was or what why it matters? I think so. And I think that was a pretty long stream. They covered a lot of topics. They covered other people's tweets and social media posts on about, you know, hashtag launch America and, you know, what it meant for a lot of people. And that's a, maybe the patriotism aspect that we will cover a little bit later. But they spent a lot of time covering it and kind of showed the whole spectrum of engagement from the public sector, from people on the ground, the community, and from SpaceX. You know, kind of covering what it meant for all these different people, and even had you know a bunch of SpaceX employees talking about the work they did and how it was important to them. And, and so, in general, I think they really did a good job of preparing for the social media release of this event. Yeah. So, if you, uh, our dear listener, were watching the DM2 launch streams along with us, let us know. Tell us what you were thinking and uh, how you feel now uh, that the launch is scrubbed and. If the launch already happened, tell us how it went uh, on Twitter at Specscast. Ferris, I, I do want to kind of take a closer look at that and uh, see with, you know, with all this hype and all this effort that NASA and SpaceX are putting into this stream and especially all the patriotism. Uh, I did want to ask, why does this mission actually matter for NASA? And so, so TJ, what's the deal with um, commercial crew and is it really as big a deal as NASA is making it out to be? So there's two really big things that the successful completion of DM2 represents. 
number one is that NASA is regaining their own dedicated access to space. So ever since the space shuttle stopped flying in 2011, NASA has been buying uh, flights to the ISS seats on Soyuz to send American astronauts. So that means American astronauts have to fly to Russia. They have to train on using the Soyuz spacecraft. They have to learn Russian. All of the launch and recovery operations happen in Russia. And back in 2011, that was a non-issue. The International Space Station is international because of the strong partnership between the United States and Russia and all the other international partners. But around 2014, relations with Russia rapidly deteriorated. And there was the question of, could NASA and the United States lose their access to space by relying on Russia? Uh, There was an interesting tweet by... Dmitry Rogozin, one of the, the deputy administrators of basically Russia's uh, equivalent to NASA. Um, and there was a lot of hostility uh, between there, right? The geopolitics, the, the actual people in NASA and Roscosmos probably didn't have strong Ill, Ill will against each other, but the United States and Russia were, you know, doing sanctions and, and hostilities. And so a couple of things got drawn into question. One was the RD-180 engine, which powers the Atlas V, uh, and that's used mainly for U.S. military launches. And then on the NASA side, it was launching astronauts to the International Space Station. So ever since then, uh, there's been this pressure of like, we need this capability locally. We need this to be launching from the United States. We need this to be on a U.S.-made rocket. And so that pressure has been there since 2014. And so that's kind of the acceleration of this whole program, right? It was started in 2010, but there's been this like, things could get worse between US and Russia at any time. And we have this singular dependency to a $100 billion plus research laboratory in space, right? We've invested so much into the International Space Station that continued access to it is extremely valuable. Right. So the the motivation for the what became the commercial crew program has been there for a long time. And we've talked in the past about Boeing and SpaceX both competing for this for years. But I did want to ask like why why this matters that the commercial crew program in particular is the reason why American astronauts are going back to the space station on an American rocket. Like um this is this contract was new. It was like completely bonkers at the time. Uh, it was a real risk for NASA to pursue it rather than the way contracts were normally set up in the past, right? Yeah. So back in 2010, NASA was looking to develop the capability to send astronauts to the space station. They had a program called Constellation, which had a rocket called Ares 1 that would use the Orion crew capsule to send people to the space station. That was canceled. And so at the time, uh, people within NASA were willing to take the risk of trying something new. And so they used something called a Space Act Agreement, which lets NASA as an organization kind of act more independently without getting the express approval from Congress to do X via Y. NASA still has to get their money approved by Congress, but NASA contains a lot of more control using a Space Act Agreement. And they used that to create a new kind of contract for NASA uh, called a fixed price service contract. So the way NASA traditionally 
built and flew rockets was using cost plus contracts. So you have NASA engineers, you have, well, you have NASA mission planners who figure out what needs to be done and how they're going to do it. And then you have NASA engineers who design the hardware and all the specifications. And then they basically give this to a contractor and says, this is what we want exactly. Please build it for us. And when you give it to us, you're delivering government property. So all of the Apollo command uh, capsules and service modules and lunar landers were government property. And then NASA is the one who operated them and launched them. And uh, in order to make that make sense for the contractor, they used to call cost plus, which is we're going to pay you for however much it costs to actually build it. And we're going to put in a certain percentage as profit for you to make it worth your while to take on this risk. Uh, and so that's basically how Apollo, Mercury, Gemini all operated. But with the fixed price service contract, NASA doesn't say this is the, exactly what we want. Give it to us and then we'll use it. It is we need people to go from the ground to the ISS. And here's some requirements of how it's safe it should be. Here's some some guide some guidelines, basically. But we need astronauts from point A to point B. We're willing to pay. Tell us what your price is. If we agree, we'll, we'll pay that price. And so you're providing a service. You're not providing a product, which is the end rocket. And that was extremely risky, extremely risky back in 2010. No one thought that you could do space on a fixed price. There was always something that was going to go wrong. There was always something that would be uh, unaccounted for. There was always going to be more development than you thought that you had to have whatever it costs plus some built-in profit in order for companies to to even want to, to try to do it. But SpaceX, Boeing, and Sierra Nevada all agreed on, on this contract. They set milestones that said, you're going to pay us X amount of money. We're going to do Y amount of development work. NASA, you're going to verify that we did it. You're going to pay us more chunks of money. And they were paid over time with these milestones. And eventually Boeing and SpaceX were down-selected to the final two. And they were given a the last uh, chunk of the contract, the commercial crew capability contract, which says, all right, you've gotten this far. You're, you're ready to start building the final capsule. We want you to, to build it, test it do an uncrewed flight, do in-flight abort tests, pad abort tests, and finally this this crew test. And so NASA's been paying them as they've been completing these milestones. But once once DM2 is completed and they've been certified, SpaceX is now a company that has a, a capsule that they could, anyone who would like to buy the service of going into space could, could pay that. Now, it's going to be very expensive. It's unlikely to be used for tourists. But we've already heard, you know, Tom Cruise would like to go to the space station and shoot a movie. And SpaceX now has that that service. It's it's not a government product. It is SpaceX owns it. Yeah. And that actually doesn't sound too crazy nowadays. That sounds kind of uh, it makes sense uh, for how we operate in the space industry now. But uh, like you said, like this, that's the product of all the work that has been done by SpaceX, by Boeing. Uh, by Sierra Nevada and NASA to get to this point. I did have one extra question, and that's now that SpaceX is on the pad with astronauts in the capsule, what happens to Starliner with Boeing's uh, crew capsule? Do they continue on uh, forward? 
Yeah, so so both SpaceX and Boeing have a contract to prove the capability, and they also have a follow-on contract to provide service. So Boeing still has to do their crewed test flight. Boeing has made an agreement with NASA that Boeing will fully pay for a new uncrewed test flight. So they're going to spend the only Boeing's money, not NASA's money, to refly the, the uncrewed flight. And that's because there was an anomaly in their other uh, flight without crew, right? Exactly. So, and so that's one of the advantages of this, is that something went wrong, and NASA has agreed that we're going to pay for what you do, not for mistakes you make along the way. And so Boeing has to commit and put up their own money uh, to resolve these issues. So Boeing is going to fly a, another uncrewed mission, and then they have their DM-2 equivalent, uh, where they will fly astronauts to the space station, and then they'll be certified for service. And then they also have a contract to launch operational missions, which go to the space station, and then they spend six months there, and then they return. But the goal has been to have dissimilar redundancy. You want SpaceX flying on a Falcon 9 to bring astronauts. You want Starliner flying on an Atlas V to bring astronauts. And you still want Soyuz to deliver astronauts. In fact, once you get into operational missions, Russian cosmonauts are going to fly on these American vehicles and American astronauts will still fly on the Soyuz and they're just going to trade seat for seat. Uh, because there was a scare on an, on MS-10 which was a Soyuz mission, there was an issue with the booster and there was an abort. And fortunately, the underlying issue was easy to fix. But if that had gone on for six months or a year, that's the only crew-rated vehicle we have to get to the space station. So having a single system is really risky. And so hopefully we'll have three very safe operational ways to get into space with humans, which is going to be awesome. Yeah, this is super exciting. Um, but I did want to ask the listeners how long they've been following NASA, whether they remember the start of the commercial crew program, uh, and also ask how the commercial crew program has changed their viewpoint of NASA or SpaceX or Boeing, uh, because it certainly changed my perspective. Um, so I'd love to hear from from our listeners. Just tweet us at, at Specscast. Uh, but NASA is one thing, but DM2 is also a major, major milestone for SpaceX. So Crew Dragon started its development back in 2010 uh, before Cargo Dragon even flew into space. So through all this, what has SpaceX gained during the development, Ferris? I think it's important to note, you know, even during the DM2 stream, you know, Elon Musk mentioned that SpaceX launching Crew Dragon is a dream come true. And if you look at where they started, they started in 2002. You know, Elon Musk started with the idea that he wanted to colonize Mars. He looked at available Russian rockets, did not find anything reasonably priced or anything affordable. And from there on, started, you know, decided to start his own space company to provide cheaper launch. And at that point in time, you know, launching humans was was not you know it wasn't something he thought was very likely. Didn't think it was something that NASA would entrust with a private space company, especially in two thousand two. And you know, if if you look at where we're at today, we re- we literally had two astronauts, you know, sacred cargo, that NASA would not entrust with anything other than. A space shuttle or maybe Saturn V, 
that has passed you know, their safety reviews, was designed by them, reviewed by them. And so for SpaceX, this is a moment where we go from, this is a vehicle that was provided by an entrepreneur or a private citizen to something that NASA uses and entrusts and meets their standards of something that you know could meet the multitude of documents and standards that they've provided from something that might have been, you know, one might have considered to be amateur in 2003, even in 2009 with Falcon 1, has failed three times. But today we're at a vehicle we've has conducted tens of flights successfully to International Space Station with a cargo dragon and has passed NASA's reviews and has gotten us there. Something that's really interesting is the difference between 21st century engineering processes and 20th century engineering processes. So back in 2018, NASA conducted a safety review of SpaceX after Elon Musk smoked weed on a podcast. And they had some interesting comparison points. One is that SpaceX has a very different culture when it comes to how they handle engineering and how they do safety. But NASA, during their investigation, found that while it was different than how NASA traditionally done it, it was likely just as safe. And there were some things to be learned from that. And the argument even back in 2010 is that commercial space is interesting. They do things in a different way, but it could could not be safe enough to launch people. And that we had to do engineering the way it had been done in the 50s, 60s, and 70s to make spacecraft safe enough to carry people. And it's really been a testament that SpaceX has proved to NASA and to itself and to the astronauts that we can make something that's safe to, to ride on and to launch on into space and to have that validated, right? Uh, that you, know, you can build something in a different way with modern technology. They have touchscreens in the capsule. It's fully autonomous. They have fancy sci-fi flight suits on. Uh, and still meet the the level of safety that NASA holds itself to. I was going to say that this this mission is the most important thing that SpaceX has ever done. So SpaceX has done some pretty important things. They've uh, you know reduced the price per kilogram to get uh, something to orbit by orders of magnitude. They've normalized the idea of reusing hardware that goes to space, and They've been right there at the forefront getting private companies to provide uh, more services to to NASA um, as a newcomer for like this whole startup space startup vibe, which is normal now. Space startups are everywhere. And up until this point, like, yeah, it was a big deal to get to land a booster with retro propulsion on a barge at sea like that's really impressive that's really important it's really cool to have dragon dock with the space station um cargo dragon dock with the space station and uh that's something that people years ago would not would have laughed at but this is like you said ferris sacred cargo this is humans in a rocket that's not how anybody at nasa would have imagined it would look like back in 2010 uh, and bringing people to space, that's a major, major, major turning point uh, for SpaceX in terms of the trust that they'll have going forward with NASA, going forward with the U.S. government. Um, it's, it's a major thing. It's a major um, trust thing, reputation thing. And uh, 
it's crucial for the the plans that they've laid out with point-to-point travel, for example, with uh, taking humans to the moon. Like none of that, like all of that depends on this moment here, bringing uh, two astronauts into orbit. It all comes down to this. And so this is really... I don't know, the nexus of all that and the culmination of all the hard work. And it really shows in the stream, seeing the SpaceX personnel roll up, you can see tremendous pride in everything. Like they have the SpaceX logo everywhere. And um, you can tell that they've rehearsed this multiple times. And uh, on the, the stream, like from the media perspective, you can tell that a lot of effort and time and practice went into showing the world that, hey, we're not this rough and tumble uh startup that doesn't care about anything and cuts corners all the time because a few rockets blew up like it's it's really proving themselves to the world that you know you can take them seriously and you can hold them in the highest regard among all of the companies that are in the industry today and uh, that's something they've been fighting for uh for a long long time yeah i think you know, we, we have been following SpaceX for many years and they've put up many payloads, whether they're Starlink satellites or Cargo Dragon capsules. But the one of the promises of SpaceX is to make space cheaper and more accessible. And my thought behind that is like more accessible to people, right? And until they actually put people into orbit, then all that accessibility really... Uh, doesn't mean much. And so this is proof that they can do that, they can do that safely, and they can leverage that into their future endeavors with regards to Starship, some of their more commercial uh, flights of Crew Dragon. And that is really exciting and inspiring. I agree with you, TJ. I think, you know, when you look, when you think about SpaceX and their mission, if your plan is to build cities on Mars that involves people, and, you know, if you look at SpaceX's track record, yeah, so far, zero human beings have been put into space by Falcon 9 or any other vehicles built by SpaceX. And so this is a really big moment in terms of these are the first people to be delivered to space by a vehicle built by SpaceX. And so this is really the first step in being a transportation services company, getting people to space and to other destinations. And it starts with low Earth orbit. And so DM2 is that first step. We might have speculated that they could do it. You know, they have plans of doing it. We know they could have done it. But this this is the moment where it happens. And this is why it's a big deal. And so maybe it didn't happen Wednesday. Hopefully it happens Saturday. But the weather is, you know, probability function. So who knows? It might, have, might be a different time. Yeah, hopefully by the time you guys are listening to this, uh, SpaceX will have successfully delivered Bob and Doug to the International Space Station safely, and uh, we'll all be celebrating, I'm sure. But what I did want to know from our listeners is, has your opinion of SpaceX changed since this launch? Has this mission, DM2, changed your opinion of SpaceX, um, and do you see them differently going forward? That's something that I know I'm going to be asking my friends and I've gotten some interesting answers already. So I'd love to hear from you guys. Uh, Just send us a tweet or an email, specscast or specscast at gmail.com. All right. So let's zoom out one more time. We talked about NASA. We talked about SpaceX. But DM2 is also an indicator of larger trends in human spaceflight now and continuing on 
into the decades into the future. TJ, how are things changing and is this uh, mission an indicator? I think uh, DM2 and kind of the end of the commercial crew development program really cements fixed price service contracts as the way forward for NASA. Uh, You could have made that call back in 2014, 2015, maybe as a prediction, but here in 2020, you were already seeing the effects of that. Uh, The recent human landing system contracts are all done with fixed price uh, development, um, where NASA sets the goal, which is to land humans on the moon with certain requirements for how many people, how much up mass, how much down mass. And they had their own concept architecture, a three-stage architecture, but all three awardees did their architectures in different ways. Um, So that's a really great example of NASA providing the destination and the money. Hi, mom. Hello. You should add that to the podcast. Do you want to come on the podcast? She, uh, she just got back from the store. Um, where was I? Uh, you were talking about how with HLS, uh, since it was fixed price contract and the companies got to decide, they all came up with different architectures. Yes. And so this is a great example of how NASA can provide the destination and the funding for development, and you get the ingenuity and the diversity of ideas from commercial partners. You also see that with the Lunar Gateway resupply contracts, where SpaceX is providing Dragon XL, which is heritage hardware from Crew Dragon and Cargo Dragon being evolved to suit a new need. So you're building up this heritage of on-orbit technology, you're opening up uh, new destinations, new use cases, and you're doing it at a dramatically lower cost than if NASA had to design and build everything themselves. What do you guys think is different between today and perhaps 50 years ago, the Apollo program that enables fixed-priced contracts as opposed to cost-plus contracts? I think the biggest difference is that companies are around and technology is available to a startup, for example, to build rocket hardware. 50 years ago, it would be kind of crazy to think of, you know, a company of less than 100 people with some venture capital could deliver cargo to orbit. And nowadays, you know, we've been talking about how there are too many of those companies. I think the availability of that technology being in the hands and cheap enough for every, everybody. Also, like computers are more powerful than most people's needs nowadays. And the general sense of normalcy for space being accessible to people, which is made possible in part by SpaceX and what they've done for the cost to orbit. So... I think a big part of it has to do with risk and the risk of being first. You know, back in the 50s and 60s, rocket technology was brand new and no one had done it before. And so in order to shoulder that risk, you have to be a government with lots of money and an external goal, right? When we talk about the space race, there's this competition with the Soviet Union and it's tied in with the Cold War and weapons development. And all those factors are pushing technology forward and pushing these achievements. Uh, And I think in order to achieve those firsts, uh, that was a great way to, to build up the momentum. When you're looking at what SpaceX is doing, they're not doing anything new. 
from an objective goal. Like they're launching people to the ISS. We've been doing that since the 90s. They've built a capsule. We've been doing that since the 60s. Uh, but they they were the first company to prove that a commercial private company could do that, that you could create a startup that could get funding and use engineering and take on that risk and then solve those risks to deliver a final product. And they've also opened the way for those companies to have business, right? SpaceX sued the government to have the right to launch and have the right to bid on these contracts. And they've enabled a commercial space market to kind of blossom with them because SpaceX is kind of basically abandoned small launchers and there's hundreds of small launch startups now, right? They've been focusing on medium and heavy lift. Um, and so it's it's really like the risk of being first. You know, everyone's calling Elon Musk crazy back in 2002 to start a space startup. And now it's it's not that crazy of an idea. It's really the fundamental difference between SpaceX designing their own launch vehicle and NASA coming coming up with their own, you know, coming up with a design and just contracting it to a contractor. And it's really, you know, what's the difference between the contract plus and the fixed price contract? So why is that a big deal, right? Why can SpaceX engineers come up with a more efficient design than NASA engineers? You know, my gut reaction was culture and that the government culture is much, much different. Um, it's slightly older and it's demographic. And I feel like it has... Uh, much closer ties to tradition and I don't know if that's like a real reason or just like an observation that they are different but um, yeah I think part of it is like NASA has is historically risk averse and as a government entity you don't risk is bad risk is bad and SpaceX has been willing and eager to take risks and their risk aversion may you know be driven by a different compass so. What, what about you, DJ? What do you think? So I think SpaceX has a great engineering culture now, but I also think uh, NASA had a great engineering culture back in the 50s and 60s. And I think the actual reason SpaceX is able to build and develop these vehicles faster and more cheaply than what NASA is able to do does not mean does not rely on the culture at all, but really external factors. One is SpaceX is a business and they're trying to make money. And so they need to cut cost and stay under cost whenever possible. So they have to design things that are more efficient and cheaper. And two, they, the outside directive is set from a business rather than from a government. We kind of joke that the SLS, the space launch system, is really the Senate launch system because Congress has put into U.S. law certain design requirements that that rocket must do and certain missions that must fly on that rocket, right? So you have over 500 politicians codifying into law what your engineering project should be versus setting a, a goal and then having the engineer, engineers optimize the solution to solve that goal, right? So it's a difference in directive plus the need to always stay under budget and to, to cut costs. NASA has much greater resources. They have over $20 billion a year uh, in their budget to, to spread across all of their programs. And if they overrun a budget, they can go and request more funding. With SpaceX, especially in the early days when they did not have a solid track record, they did not have solid revenue, every dollar mattered. 
And so I think that is what's kind of driven into the culture. The fact that the SpaceX engineering culture is, is younger than NASA is, is more of a demographic and it really re- reflects onto what kind of programs I think NASA and SpaceX have been working on. NASA has these long-running scientific missions. NASA has a legacy workforce from the shuttle who might have started fresh out of college in the 80s and 90s working on shuttle who are still there. While SpaceX has hired a bunch of people out of college spinning up Cargo Dragon and Crew Dragon. And I think ULA is a great example of a company that is changing their culture. Uh, When Tori Bruno took over, they had mass layoffs. They slimmed down into what they could afford to support. And they've been really hiring aggressively younger engineers to power new initiatives and new programs. And we're starting to see those benefits pay off. So I think the culture is is both good and bad. You can build great things with a bad culture. It's just going to be harder. So TJ and Ferris, I wanted to ask you about a different aspect of this. Uh, that we've already kind of talked about. But during the stream, uh, someone asked Jim Bridenstein about uh, the relationship with Congress. And he gave an interesting answer. And I wanted to know how you guys feel about the future of Congress's uh, relationship with NASA and whether the current relationship is sustainable going forward, given things like uh, this commercial crew program, fixed price contracts, and things like SLS and James Webb still going strong. What's the future of the government's relationship with NASA with respect to these different space programs? For whatever reason, space exploration and, you know, delivering cargo and taking people to space was really never viewed as something that private institutions are able to do. It's always was viewed as something that, you know, public funds were spent doing. You know, was spent on, and any privatization of that was kind of sacrilegious. You, you couldn't do that. It didn't make sense. Why would anyone make money off of doing that? Sometimes I feel like there's maybe two views of something. It's like you're giving something to profiteering off of just government contracts, which is, you know, maybe space industry fell into that early on. And there are other aspects where, okay, providing private contra- contracts actually was very efficient and beneficial for the government. And for a long time, the space industry did not fall into the bucket of, you know, that being more efficient because who else would pay money for putting things in the space? You know, you, you might have been providing funding for a private institution to kind of just profiteer off the government, but that really, you know, might have changed over the last 10 or so years with more payloads getting to space, more commercial companies really relying on that, kind of like you know, a lot of the communication companies today, a lot of private institutions using you know the available payload capacity to provide services to people on Earth here. In general, Earth observation communication for people on Earth. And that being a market that's fueling a you know private industry that the US government can just piggyback on instead of fueling. That, that makes sense from a perspective of the government providing funds to private companies. Like so far, that's happened through NASA, but NASA gets its money from Congress and it has to ask for money from Congress. And for these fixed price contracts to private companies, the conversation is a little bit different than how they ask for money for uh, NASA owned projects like the Space Launch System. What I wanted to ask was like, if you think that 
the relationship NASA has with the people that give them money is sustainable right now uh, with the future of you know things trending toward fixed price. I ask that because I feel like the relationship is being strained. And so um, I wanted to know if, if you felt that way too. I guess the next question is, why do you think that relationship is being strained? Or why do you, why do you think so? I feel like the relationship has been strained because like in the past, NASA has been the customer and the supplier for their own projects. And uh, Congress uh, funding NASA to for NASA to have demand and also supply gives them a lot of control for where the money goes and how the money flows. And um, when the money goes somewhere, it's not just going into you know, the ether that wears the NASA banner. There are people that are getting paid there. There are pe- Those people live in different states, work for different companies that um, subcontract that exist in different places in the country. And the government's job is to do what's best for the people they represent. And so uh, directing those funds to benefit their uh, constituents is good for them. And so I feel like one of the points of contention with things like fixed prices, you, you kind of lose that uh, influence you have over where the money goes. It just kind of goes to whoever is cheapest uh, or whoever meets the requirements rather than um, getting that say in where the money goes. So I feel like that's been, uh, it's been strained. Uh, it's been straining conversations regarding fixed price contracts like this. But I don't think that's very new to begin with. If, you know, if you look at the U.S. military, the U.S. military provides you know, requirements for vehicles they intend to buy, the needs they need to meet, and contractors go out, who design those vehicles, come up you know, with prototypes and build them and fly them to provide, or you know, conduct tests on the ground to, you know, to prove that those whatever vehicles have designed meet those needs, right? I didn't mean for this to get into a discussion about the military-industrial complex. No, no, it, it, but, but overall, it's not about the military-industrial complex, right? It's, it's about services that are provided by private industry to government and whether those services need to be driven. And how far do the requirements need to extend to those private industries, right? Does the government need to design and come up with what private industry needs to build? Or does private industry just provide services? As in, hey, do this thing for us and we'll build it or we'll you know, operate it to do X, Y, and Z. TJ, I know you have thoughts on this. So would you, <laughs> would you like to share what you think? I think the, the current relationship between Congress and NASA is in a very interesting position. I would not say that it is adversarial right now. I think the key aspect of commercial crew that allowed it to exist and be successful is actually how small and cheap it was. The total cost for SpaceX and Boeing to develop their systems and to design and launch them with these test flights is under $6 billion. So for $6 billion, you get two functional rocket and spacecraft systems. The uh, NASA budget office ran a report that if if NASA had internally designed Ares-1 and Orion to fly to the space station... The NASA estimated that it would be $24 billion. And looking back, they expected that cost to extend to $34 billion. Billion, so, billion with a B. Mm-hmm. For one rocket and one capsule. And so that, keeping that in context, Crew Dragon has been an insane deal for NASA. And 
because it was such little money and because the money was broken up over many years and done through milestones, it was never this large budget item that could be scrapped. And so once it started gaining momentum and building up um, actually built hardware and, and tests and ground tests and test flights, and I think that coupled with the tensions in Crimea in 2014 that put the Soyuz uh, situation in doubt really locked in the program. Because at the early days, commercial crew was was underfunded. Congress didn't want to fund it. They didn't want to get it started. And around 2012, it started getting consistent funding and was able to actually progress. And so I think the the cheapness of commercial crew is, is the key that it was not more politically um, agitating. And now that we've gone to the completion and we've demonstrated that this system works, we've already seen NASA be more comfortable with the human landing system contracts to, to do those contracts like this. The bottom line is some people in Congress are very upset about this. But the other bottom line, in general, most U.S. citizens don't care about space. It is, there's a very few people who are passionate about it. Fortunately, with NASA PR and SpaceX PR, more people are being exposed to space. There's more news articles. There's more space reporters or newspapers opening up space sections and space columns. But we as hardcore space fans are in the the tiny, tiny minority in the in the country of the whole population and that is reflected by the senators and congress people only the senators and congress people in states where spaceflight development and activities make up a significant chunk of those economies those are the people on on leading the committees those are the people with vested interests and fortunately or unfortunately uh most people don't care and so i think it's it's really nice that we're able to see this program start and come to fruition to have an awesome product at the end that does what it it says on the tin for a dramatically reduced price. It's great that there's now strong arguments to do this on different programs, but I, I think uh, Congress is going to have a hard time putting this particular genie back in the bottle. They're going to, it's going to be hard to return to 2009 way of doing things now that the decisions in 2010 have played out 10 years later. So there are programs that are still ongoing that um, are set up in a way that is not consistent with how the norm is today, right? So like you just said, how putting the genie back in the bottle, um, but these programs are continuing through having started before that, you know, this commercial crew program was proven. So do you think moving forward, those programs are going to face changes with respect to how they are viewed in terms of funding um, or if they're at risk of being canceled or anything like that? Like what's your opinion? So to offer an example SLS is a cost plus contract that's been going on for many years, and it's it's trying to build a rocket and a capsule uh, to go for beyond Earth orbit exploration. That specific program and that specific contract is unlikely to be changed and redirected, and it's unlikely for it to be canceled. 
I think that specific program has a lot of political support. It has laws written uh, and, and signed by Congress um, built into it. Uh, so it is really unique in that it is a cross-administration, cross-congressional session program that really has strong political support. I think the better thing to look at is a different program, James Webb Space Telescope. That's a program that's been going on for 24 plus years. It's dramatically over budget and it's a cost plus contract. However, a fixed price service contract doesn't make sense for that. Like there are still going to be space missions that NASA wants to do that are so risky and don't provide a commercially viable product at the end for companies to develop. It makes sense for SpaceX to build Cargo Dragon and Crew Dragon because they can launch other paying passengers and they can launch satellites on Falcon 9. It does not make sense for SpaceX to build a James Webb Space Telescope because you're only going to need one of those. You're not going to need an assembly line of them. There's not going to be other customers for them. The cost plus contract model is still valuable for specific missions. But I think for the subset of missions involving human spaceflight and rocket transportation has been proven that it is uh, reliable enough and desirable enough that we can do these fixed price contracts instead. Very well put. Um, can't agree with you more there. Okay, so uh, we're near the end of this episode, and I wanted to ask one final question to all three of us, uh, and that is what do you think the next big milestone is for human spaceflight? I'll go first. I think the next big milestone for human spaceflight is most certainly landing on the moon. Uh, fortunately, we already have the beginnings of that rolling with the human space with the human landing system. You can check out a previous episode about the HLS contract winners that we just put out a couple weeks ago. And the reason I say that is because, like uh, this demo mission, the landing humans on the surface of the moon will prove out the fundamentals needed for so many more things. So like commercial crew is proving that a private company, uh, multiple private companies can be given some requirements and let loose and come up with a viable solution that is safe enough for people to get to low earth orbit. And in order for anyone to do anything outside of low earth orbit, they'll have to do the same things that are required to land on the moon. They'll have to go leave Earth orbit, um, just spend an appreciable amount of time um, in space. Lots of docking, lots of multi-stage operations will be necessary, and the products that will come out of it will also be essential to infrastructure for expanding human operations throughout the solar system. And so I think... Put, specifically putting humans on the surface of the moon is the next major, major milestone uh, above anything else. Ferris, what do you think? I, I agree with you, Phil. I think the next big major milestone is, is really getting people on the moon with on, on a commercial vehicle, which would be different from the Apollo days where it's a government-designed vehicle, a NASA-designed vehicle that got people on the moon. You know, perhaps another possible milestone is getting a commercial space station up in space might be a precursor to getting commercial astronauts into space. But you know, Jim Bridenstine mentions that in a lot of the 
kind of live streams he's in, a lot of the interviews he's in. This is really um, a precursor step to opening up the commercial space industry to manufacturing and other use cases in space, which is what really NASA is trying to push for. It's trying to push for this low Earth orbit economy where space benefits people on Earth a lot more, you know, other than just science research, but commercial products where we can use that to kind of bootstrap and push out uh, a low Earth orbit economy where, you know, space launches are happening for economical reasons other than just Earth observations or communication. We're building this new market where you know, companies and investors are putting money in to really get people up to space because that's making them money. And that engine, the economical engine is now both, you know, increasing the investment into technology, I guess, as a space and into just the operations and, and to the day-to-day -day steps that are necessary to putting people up there. And that, and economical engines tend to be self, you know, self-growing. You're trying to increase sales, you're trying to improve technology so you can improve your profits and whatnot. And, and, and so that is the engine that everybody's trying to ignite to get people into the solar system into just beyond low Earth orbit, right? So I think really, you know, we might be in in the near term, we might be looking into people getting into you know, onto the moon because of NASA generated demand, you know, they want to really get be, get people back there. But as things progress, we might be able to see other industries develop in low Earth orbit and we might be able to even see commercial astronauts get there. Timeline on that is a lot more fuzzy, it really depends on how things progress in terms of commercial developments that can generate demand here on Earth, be it pharmaceuticals or uh, optic fibers that can provide better internet to all of us while we work at home. Um, but I, I suppose we will see, and uh, as you said, Phil, the closest thing we might be able to see is really humans landing on the moon. How about you, TJ? What's the next big milestone for human spaceflight? Phil, when you originally asked this question, I jumped to seeing Starship fly with people, saying that if we had a vehicle that has the capability to go beyond low Earth orbit to the moon and to Mars with a system that's fully reusable, we can do that cheaply. I was like, I think that would be the next big human uh, milestone in space. However, uh, you brought up landing humans on the moon. And with that, my thinking was, well, we've already done that. But looking closer at the human landing system contract proposals, it really is going to the moon in a commercial way with commercial companies with all sorts of new capabilities they haven't done. And I think you're right, Phil, that commercial crew has proven that a commercial company can launch something to lower the orbit and dock with the space station. And that's really is space on easy mode right? You are protected from radiation by the Earth's magnetic field. You have the benefit of GPS satellites. So you have absolute positioning and you have a safe haven halfway through your journey where if something happens, you can stay on the ISS for a rescue. Going beyond low Earth orbit, going towards the moon, take Dynetics, for example. They need to launch a series of fuel depots for their fueling modules so that their lander can refuel and hop along towards the moon down to the lunar surface and then back up and refuel 
that is an intense amount of logistics and infrastructure and uh, launches to support their concept of operations all the way from Earth to the moon. And we spent a whole episode talking about that in a previous episode. Check out the human landing system episode. Exactly. And with Starship proposal uh, acting as a lunar lander, you still need all those reu- reusable aspects of the system. And you also need to be able to conduct on-orbit refueling with massive quantities of fuel, which has never been done before. And that's a crazy capability. So no matter what happens with that program, commercial space is getting a massive leg up and they're taking on massive amounts of risk, which is really exciting. And Ferris, when you brought up the commercialization of space and having a commercial space station, I think that's also a really great goal. And whether it ends up being the destination being the surface of the moon with a moon base and gateway resupply and things like that, or a low Earth orbit commercial space station, I think making space sustainable outside of government funding is also a really great goal. So I think both of those are really exciting. I think they're also they're closer than they've ever been. And note, none of that involves sending humans to Mars. Humans to Mars is, is still so far out, technically, politically, just outside of what we're talking about, but we have so much to be excited about and to accomplish in the near term. And I think commercial crew and DM2 open up those possibilities and say, we don't even have, we don't have to worry about proving we can send a person to space. It's now proving we can send them to new locations. Yeah. This is such a cool topic. Um, you know, thanks guys for, for having this chat about DM2 today. Uh, listeners, I hope you enjoyed this discussion, and we really uh, want to include you in this. Uh, this is a historic moment for uh, SpaceX, for the commercial space industry, and for humans, uh, for Americans too. And I, I just, uh, this is really cool, and I just want to be able to share with everybody. So I also want to ask you guys what you think the next big milestone is for human spaceflight. And uh, you can send us a tweet at SpexCast or an email to SpexCast at gmail.com. And uh, we hope the next time uh, we could read them and respond and maybe read a few on the show. So thanks for listening, everybody. If you like this episode, you can subscribe to get future episodes on Spotify, Google Podcasts, or iTunes or wherever else you get podcasts. You can check out our huge backlog of past episodes and blog posts on our website, blog.specscast.com. And TJ has been doing a great job putting new blog posts up, especially following the DM2 mission. Um, and be sure to let us know what you think. How are we doing? Are we talking about things that you're interested in? And uh, uh, what do you think about these topics that we're talking about? Leave a review on iTunes or your podcast service or reach out to us again uh, on Twitter. We're at SpexCast or our email is super easy to remember. It's SpexCast at gmail.com. Our music is by Nelson Scott. See you later.